So tonight we're considering what the witness of God's household really looks like, all right? The question basically is, how is God's church to live before a watching world? And so um, can we just be honest from the very outset, right? So um, this is a question I think that we wrestle with all the time. Internally, I believe we are wrestling with this question of what does it look like to be the church before a watching world all the time. For us in a city like St. Louis, um, in a time and a period that many are describing as a post-Christian time, meaning that our culture is no longer sharing these ideals of the Christian faith, um, so if you would go back to like the 50s, um, there would be similar beliefs on things like marriage and divorce or the marital bedroom or ethics or even how you viewed debt, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian back in the 50s. But you fast forward now and things are a lot different for us. So if there were a senior adult that were to speak into the life of a young adult or a teenager as they're about to leave the home and the, young, the senior adult were to say to the younger adult, be good, the question wouldn't be like this mutual understanding, but now it would be, what's your definition of good? You know what I'm saying? And so our culture with this no longer sharing the same ideals or sort of ideas about what morality looks like or just the same um, vision for how we carry out this life, I think this is a question that we really need to wrestle with. And I don't say this to kind of bemoan and wish that we were back in the 50s. I think there's some health to where we're seeing that there's not this cultural Christianity that's happening anymore. I think there's some good in this, but we do. We need to own the reality that we feel in our interactions with our neighbors, with our coworkers, our friends, and even sometimes our family, that there's this divide and there's this divorce, and we're really wrestling with the question, like, how do I live this out? In a, a time and a period where it feels like there's opposition to what I believe the Bible actually teaches for how I'm to live and to function in this world, but yet I know that it's not since like a hostility in terms of like a physical hostility, but I know that there's a lot of butting heads that can happen if I really to hold to this Christian belief set that I really truly believe deep down in my heart is what God's called me to live. Like, how do I do this? How do I live this out? How do I wrestle this before? And so I think if we are looking at this world that oftentimes we feel like are sneering at us or a lot of times are kind of misrepresenting us, Sometimes it feels like people just view Christians as like these Westboro Baptists that are showing up and they're just trying to do all these different rallies at different things and trying to oppose all the stuff that's happening in our culture. It feels like sometimes it's what people just think a Christian is about. Well, if that's the case, then how do, how do we do this? Like, how do we step into our culture to live out the life that God has saved us to live, that we want to live, that we feel called to live out how do we do this? What's the vision for us to do this? Um, like, am I just preaching to myself? You feel this with me? Well, Titus 3 really speaks in here. It's a gift, y'all. Titus 3 is such a gift, all right? So believe it or not, um, being a Christian in Paul's time was a lot more challenging than it is today, all right? So if you think about the period that Paul lived in, he lived in the time of the Roman Empire, obviously, and people did not just look down on Christians at this point in time, they actually sought their physical harm, 
All right. So at the point in time that Paul is probably writing this letter, Nero was Caesar at the time. And Nero was just really famous for going and grabbing Christians and then bringing them to his garden parties and using them as human torches to light up his parties. Uh, A lot more challenging to be a Christian in Paul's day and age, to say the least. And so it's in this climate that Paul is actually writing, and here's what he's kind of basically laying out for Titus as he's planting this new church in a wild place called Crete, and these people that are just always brawling, they're liars, they, they're, they're just a heinous people. Paul's writing before Titus, and he's saying, hey, this is what it looks like in this whole entire climate in Crete, in the Roman Empire, to live out the Christian faith. Amen. We need this today. We need this. So we have a lot to learn from Titus chapter 3 here of how we can navigate life as God's people in a world that feels like it's continuing to grow separate in our ideas of how we live this life and even the ways that we view morality and many other things. And so here's my prayer for us as we're kind of wrestling with Titus 3. I pray that there's just this humble conviction that God stirs inside of us, all right? This conviction that we live out the gospel, that there's this finality in our life that we want to follow Jesus, we want to live with Jesus, we want to walk with his people in this world the way that he's called us to live, but we don't do it in this arrogant aura or this way that we're looking at ourselves as better than the watching world, but we carry it out with this lightness, this humility, this lowliness, in the same way that we saw Jesus live and walk amongst this world. That's my desire. That's my prayer for us, that as we look at this Christian faith, that this vision that God's church is the household, God's household, and we try to function in this world, that God stirs in us just a humble conviction to walk and live in this world the way that he's called us to do so. So here's where we're going. If you're a note taker, here's kind of like where we're headed, all right? We're going to look at Titus 3 in three different movements, all right? And as we look at this, I want us to look at the practice, the motive, and the posture of the household witness before a watching world. So the practice, how does Paul instruct us to live before a watching world? What does it actually look like? What are the instructions that Paul lays down for the church here in Titus chapter 3? Then we're going to move because I believe Paul comes and follows that up with sort of the motive by which we live here in Titus chapter 3. So what's the motive for this lifestyle? And then we'll close it out with the posture. So the response of the motive, if we wrestle with what Christ has done for us, then what's the posture of the lifestyle that we're to live? So it's not just the, we're going to walk in this begrudgingly, but what's the posture, the heart change that takes place inside of us that empowers us to go live the life that Christ has called us to live, all right? So Paul gives us the what before the why, or he gives us the practice before the motive. Um, so we'll consider that first in verses 1 through 2. I'll read it to refresh us, and then we'll dive in. All right, so here's what he says in verses 1 through 2. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So here's the practice that Paul's calling us to here in verses 1 and 2. The first one is to be exemplary citizens, and the second one is to be a gracious neighbor, all right? So being an exemplary citizen, 
consider verse one. Here's what he says. Submit to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. So at the heart of what I think Paul's trying to advocate to Titus as well as the church is that we are to be agreeable and generous when it comes to our interactions with civil authorities, all right? So when there is a need within our community, Paul is trying to say to the church, look, you should be eager and ready to step into that need whenever it's brought to you, or even if it's not brought to you, that you're ready to step in and engage because that's what Christ has done for you. So um, we, Joe Vaccaro is our uh, alderman here in the Lindenwood Park area. And so we, we tried to do this as a church. And so we gave Joe a call and we asked Joe, hey, what are some things that are needing to be done within the life of our community? And so if you're wondering how have we gotten connected with like Lindenwood Area Senior Ministries, it's because we called the alderman and we're trying to step into things within the life of our community. We want to be an asset to this area. And I believe that's what Paul's really calling the church to be. It's like, hey, when there's need, when the people that are marginalized in your society, when you see things that are taking place in this world, the church is to be ready and eager to step in. And that's what he's essentially laying before them. They're to be generous as they work with civil authorities as they become an asset to the community. But not only that, they're also to possess a heart that desires to be agreeable in their workings with civil leaders. All right, so let me just state the obvious here, all right? The authority of Christ and his commands is supreme in our life as a Christian. It is. So anytime there is a civil authority that brings a command to us that would necessitate us to oppose the command of Christ in our life, we cannot follow that. Jesus is supreme in our life. He's the one that our heart and our devotion is towards. So if there's ever a time and a place, look, we're going to be a church that we're not going to go with that. We're not going to oppose Christ in the way that we live this society. But at the same time, I want us to be a church that possesses a heart that tries to think more of how can we make this work rather than I want to, you to feel my authority and my objection. You see the difference? Like, I want the civil authorities as if there's a point in time that Joe would give us a call or another city official that will give us a call and they ask us to step in or there's different things that are brought about in our society, like the mass mandates and things like that. I would rather than feel for us, how can we make this work rather than we're going to be a strict opponent to you and the things that you're trying to do in the society, unless it causes us to oppose Jesus and the gospel and the work that we feel God has called us to do in this watching world. I believe that's what Paul's trying to say that he wants us to be when he's laying out submit to rulers and authorities to obey and to be ready for every good work. It's not that we're this pain in the civil leader's sides as they're trying to lead our community forward, but rather, how can we make this work? How can we be ready to step in? How can we be an asset to our community? How can we live out the things that Christ has done for us and be a living example for other people of outward display of an inward reality that he has brought about in our life? That's what Paul's trying to call us to here as we think about wrestling with submitting to rulers and authorities. So not only are we to be exemplary citizens, but we're also to be gracious neighbors. You see this in verse two, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So imagine this neighbor, all right? 
Imagine this neighbor from what Paul has just laid out in the descriptions here. That they slander no one. Meaning, like, even if there's been wrong that's done against you, you don't speak poorly about that neighbor to the rest of your neighborhood. That you are, you avoid fighting. Imagine a neighbor that rather than kind of riling things up in your neighborhood, steps in to try to, like, bring down the tension. You know what I'm saying? Working towards resolutions rather than trying to stir the pot and making things worse. That's what Paul is saying here to avoid fighting. They're to be kind, meaning you actually give the person the benefit of the doubt in your neighborhood. And man, like being a neighbor can be really hard. Like the division lines with your uh, property lines, noise in the home, who's paying for the fix on the fence, you know what I'm saying? Like all of these types of things can be really, really hard. But Paul's saying in the midst of all of it, that we are to be the people that are giving the benefit of the doubt within our neighborhoods as we consider what it looks like to live with those that God has placed around us. Man, if you live into this, it, like, I believe it would kill all, like, the neighborhood Facebook pages, you know what I'm saying? All the things that you see, all the junk that comes on my neighborhood, neighbor, neighborhood Facebook page, like, it would just probably shut down the whole page. Like, if you had neighbors that were stepping in, and man, if they were always showing gentleness to all people, wow, what a neighbor, Right? Like, that's a neighbor that you're willing to die for. <laughs> Some of us are like, man, that's not my neighbor. I would love to have that neighbor. Look, that's the type of neighbor that God's calling you to step in to be within this world. And so all this, this work, being an exemplary citizen, being a gracious neighbor, is to be an overflow of the natural reality of what the church is fighting for inwardly within herself. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. All right? So essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Within the church, you need to keep the main thing the main thing, and then you also need to fight for unity. That's what Paul's laying out in these few verses here. They don't lose sight of keeping Jesus at the forefront and everything that they do or holding tightly to their core beliefs. This is why we like have a theological triage. If you're coming to our forward class, you get to hear and work through some of that theological triage. But like, man, there's things that we hold tight-fisted within the life of the church that we can't budge on. That God is one in three persons, the Trinity. Like, we can't budge on that. The exclusivity of Jesus for our salvation, we can't budge on that. That Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man, we can't budge on that. These are things that we keep at the forefront. But man, things like the creation debate or things like the, like the spiritual gifts and how you practice them in the life of the church, we're not going to be divisive over those things. Like there's space for us to differ on that, but yet still fight for unity in the life of the church. We are to be a people that, man, Paul says, if you are a person that is divisive, you're supposed to come first and second warning. And then if they don't respond to that, then you're to consider them outside of the church. He's saying, fight for unity. Within the life of the church, be willing to lay down your preferences. Don't be a divisive person in the life of the church. Actually fight for unity. This is essential for us to be a, 
exemplary citizen, as well as a generous, gracious neighbor in the life of our community. So look, we're going to be a people that fight to keep the main thing the main thing, and then we're also going to fight for unity, and it bleeds out, it flows over into the way that we live within our community. And so as I was wrestling with this this week, I kind of had two internal responses to it, all right? So the first one is this, like, goodness, this community is stunning to think about. A community of people that want to fight for the good of their city. They want to be gracious neighbors that don't speak poorly of people that actually try to build up. They're always gentle, like they're an asset to their community and they're a neighbor that you would die for. And it's all out of a cause of a bleed over and overflow of what's actually taking place within the household of faith. Stunning community. The second one is like, man, but that's really challenging. (laughs) Like my inward thought was like, what about when I'm tired and I'm hungry, Paul? You know what I'm saying? And like, look, I, I, I did you a solid and I went and tried to look and wrestle with like, is there any exceptions? There's not. There's no exceptions here. Paul's saying, this is who we're to be. Even when it feels like all the cards are stacked up against you, this is the life that God has saved you and called you to live into. And so look, for a group of people to be committed to such a lifestyle like this, they must have a killer motive. There has to be this life-altering event that has taken place in their life in order for them to live a lifestyle like this that feels like you're a salmon swimming upstream in a world that seems like it's just coming at you. And that's exactly what we see in verses three through eight. In three through eight, we see Paul give one of the most compelling and comprehensive descriptions of the gospel that you can find in all of the Bible. It's beautiful. And it's the motive as well as the power of the new life that Christ has called his church to live, all right? So in verses three through eight, Paul lays out four things for us. He lays out the when, the why, the how, and the what for of our salvation, all right? And so I want us to work through that kind of verse by verse here. So we find the when in verses three through four. Here's what it says. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. So stop there. So Paul's not making this list that Christians are superior to non-Christians, right? What he's actually trying to flesh out for us is like, we were just like everyone else. Before Jesus entered into our life, we were just like everyone else. There was nothing about us that made us particularly stand out to Jesus. We were like everyone else. The things that I've just laid out for you and the way that we're to live this life before a watching world, that's not who we were in the past. But as Paul's kind of giving us this motivation as a follow-up to the practice, he's also spelling out for us the win of our salvation that we find in verse 4. He says, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, verse 5, he saved us. So when did God save us? While we were still sinners. 
while we were still fools, while we were still disobedient, while we were still deceived in our hearts, while we were still enslaved to our own, fat, our own passions, we couldn't get over our own um, bodily desires. They controlled us. Whenever we were still malicious, when we were envious, when we were hateful, when we were constantly disgusted with people, it's in the midst of that, that was us, that Christ stepped in and saved us. And so then Paul moves on to the why in verse 5. He says, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. So why did God save us? Not because of anything that we had done. God didn't look down from heaven and see a group that's really trying hard to live a righteous life and to make his, their way to uh, God himself. And he, didn't, he wasn't like compelled by this. And so he sent Jesus down to kind of help them get to the final end of where they were at. Nor was he like overwhelmed by this display of affection by a group of people for him. There's people that really just, man, they loved God with all that they had, but they just couldn't like overcome in their life some of the different challenging sins in their life. They were sort of like these minor things. They weren't big things, but they just couldn't like get over the hump. That's not what God tells us here. Rather, God saves us because he's merciful. He saves us because he's compassionate. He saves us because he has goodwill and kindness towards those that are unbefitting of it. Those people that are still lost in their sin. Jesus didn't come to save us because of our character. He came to save us because of his character. Because he has a bleeding heart for people that are broken, that are opposed to him, that are lost in their sin. And our God is so overwhelmed with love, overflowing with love, that he stepped into our mess. He owned it for us. He lived perfectly for us. He died on the cross for us. He rose from the grave for us so that we can have new life in him. So why did God save us? Because he's compassionate and merciful, not because of anything that we have done. There's nothing about us that was inherently attractive to God that compelled him to come other than we bore his image and we are lost in our sin. That's all we bring to the table. So how was God merciful towards us? We see these, uh, this latter half of five through verse seven through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. There are a bunch of important words here. All right, let's wrestle with two of the primary ones, all right? So the first one, the washing of regeneration. So here's a Greek word for you. I want you to repeat it with me. So palingentia. Can you say that? Palingentia. Palingentia. Say it again. Palingentia. Yeah. All right. So Jesus uses this word, all right, to describe the final renewal of all things. So whenever Jesus comes back, heaven comes down to earth and he makes all things new Jesus uses the word palagentia. What's he saying here? We are a new creation. 
the washing of regeneration is you are regenerated. You are generated again. You are born again. You are made a new creation. The old has died. The new has come. And God does not just repair you. He makes you completely new. So look, the punishment for your sin is completely paid for here. This is what we see in the justification by his grace, all right? So not only is the washing of regeneration happen inside of us, the palagencia, we are a new creation. The second thing is we are justified by his grace. So God declares us righteous through the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And here's what this means. The punishment for your sin was paid in full past, present, and future, and there's nothing left that we owe because Jesus has paid it all for us. That's the justification by his grace. So here's what Paul is saying by these two really important phrases. One, he's saying that you have a new status through Jesus Christ, and that's justified. You are right with God. There's nothing left that you owe because Jesus has done everything for you that you could not do for yourself. And then you also have a new birth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation. This is the how of your salvation. Jesus has done all the work for you and then you get the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you and he makes you completely new. Which leads us to the what was all this done for? Why was God so gracious to us? What was his end goal? What was his desire through all this, which we see in verses seven through eight? So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So, why or what was all this done for? First one was that God could take dead corpses because that's what the Bible tells us, that we are dead in our sin. And then he turns us and makes us alive and he makes us heirs of his coming kingdom. No, I don't know if there's a more uh, polar opposite than what we see and what the gospel does inside of us through Jesus Christ. People that are dead in their sin, not only are we alive now, but we are heirs of the kingdom of this, the kingdom of God that is coming into this world that's broken in, that we get to step in and live in here and now, and it's gonna come with finality when Jesus comes back again. That's the first what for. And the second one, is that we were a new creation so that we actually can step in and obey. We can do good works. We can live into verse one and two, that we can be exemplary citizens and we can be gracious neighbors. Even whenever everyone else seems to be opposed against us, we can step in and live through the power and the strength of Jesus through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us to be the little Christians, the little Christ that Jesus has called us to be. That's what's for and so look, the motive for the practice is this unthinkable salvation that God has extended to all of us. That God saved me when I was at my worst. 
that he made peace with me despite my inability to repay him for anything that he will do on my behalf, that he gave me new life, that he gave me a new status, and that he made me a beneficiary of his kingdom. All of this is the what for. And it's beautiful. So look, this leads to our posture. What's the posture of the Christian life? If the motive is for us to live as exemplary, or if the uh, practice is for us to live as exemplary citizens and gracious neighbors, the motive is the gospel, the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us, then the posture, I believe, is in the Christian life is joy. Is joy. It's the appropriate response to the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. The early church was marked by this, y'all. The early church was marked by joy. Let me give you a few different references, all right? So according to Luke, um, in his gospel, when Jesus went and was ascended to be with the Father, in Luke chapter 24, here's what Luke records of the disciples' response to Jesus' ascension. And while he was blessing them, speaking of Jesus, while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried to the heaven. And after worshiping him, the disciples, they're seeing all this happen. They're led to worship. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. Moving on from that, at the inception of the church after Pentecost, the Bible reports that they worshiped God daily in the temple and then they scattered into each other's homes and shared meals. You know how they ate? It says this in verse 46, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. You move on from that, the the early church is being persecuted for what they believe about Jesus. The apostles are standing firm in what they believe about Jesus, that he's resurrected from the grave, and they're proclaiming this to anyone and everyone that's willing to hear. And so they're being persecuted. They're put in prison. They're brought before um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what happens after they are beaten and they're cast out and told not to speak of it again, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. The early church was marked by joy. Now, you may be like, if you're a little, like a cynic, a little bit like me, you may be saying, well, this is just circular arguments, Right? Like, you're saying that the Bible is just basically reporting on itself. Well, let me give you what some others said in the Roman Empire about the Christians. Um, The Athenian philosopher Aristides, I had to look that up and actually played a YouTube video of how to pronounce that, so you can thank me later after this. He wrote to the Roman emperor in 117 AD, and here's what he said about Christians. Every morning and all hours on account of the goodness of God toward them, they render praise and laud him over their food and their drink. They render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God and they follow his body as though he were being moved from one place to another. And when a child is born to them, they praise God. And if again, if chances to die in its infancy, they praise God mightily as for one who has passed through this world without sins. A philosopher from Athens looks at the Christian community. What are they marked by? They're marked by joy. In death or life, in good or bad, in hard times, in good times, the response of the early church is gladness and joy in all of life. 
So um, if you like watch a wartime movie, um, you have the filmmakers, they try to capture this sense of gratitude for some of the big things that happen in war movies. So if you have like a evil empire that is overseeing a community and the community is liberated from that, you usually have like this triumphal, like the like army goes through the community and the community comes out and they're like lauding things and like the community wants to go and do these exemplary things for this. Like they're trying to capture the sense of gladness for them. Or if there's like a major sacrifice that is laid down on the battlefield, you'll have like this indebtedness that happens within that person's life that they try to live that out before them. Now look, there's an indebtedness in us towards Christ for all that he's done for us, but there's a difference here, all right? So if you watch these wartime movies and you see the way that they try to capture these moments, this indebtedness leads to this trying to earn what has been done for them and try to prove that they were worthy of it. You see this? So if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, um, whenever Tom Hanks is dying on the bridge and he looks at Private Ryan, he says, earn this. And so you go to the very last scene of the movie. What's, what happens at the very last scene? He's standing before the tombstone and he says, I remember that day, every day of my life, the words that you spoke to me. I hope that everything that I've done has been worth it. There's this indebtedness, there's a deep gratitude, absolutely, but there's indebtedness that I need to try to prove and live up to to show what the sacrifice that was made for me was worth it. You know what changed for, what, you know what the difference was for the early church? They didn't live for approval to try to prove that it was worth it, they actually lived from the approval that they had in Jesus. That's the difference that happens there. They don't live with this big burden on their shoulders that I need to go try to prove that what Jesus did for me was worth it because the way that I followed up has proven that I was somebody that was worth calling into his family. That's not how the early church responded. The early church responded by living from the approval that they had in Jesus and the response to it was lightness and joy. That's the difference. And look, if we are to live as a we like as Christians for all that Jesus has done for us, all the grace that has been shown towards us, the kindness and the mercy that God has shown towards us, we should be the lightest people that live on the face of the earth. I mean, Jesus himself tells us, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like your debt has been paid. Like officially, finally, you owe nothing left. It's all been done. Like, you get to live without the burden of, I need to go do this to show Jesus that I was worth it, or I have to make up what's lacking and what Christ has done. It's all been done for you. And so the response, look, it should be joy, y'all. We should be some of the most joy-filled people, no matter what happens in our life, that this world could ever encounter. Because our Eternity is so secure in Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. There's nothing that can happen to pull him out of that heaven, to send him back into the grave and to roll the tomb, the, the tombstone over the tomb again. It can't happen. Nobody can touch Jesus. He's there and then he's coming back for us. Everything that needs to be done for us for all eternity has been done in Jesus. And so look, the response is, man, what, why wouldn't we live with joy? Everything that we have is a gift. 
So think about reading through Titus 3, 1 through 3 again, these words that Paul has put before the church and this posture that we are to live with joy. He says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. I'd be happy to. You know why? Because Jesus has done everything for me. He's my ultimate king. I believe that he puts every person in their place. And so if these are God's ordained officials, I'm going to submit to them. I'm going to obey them. I'm going to step in. And anytime there's an opportunity for me to step in and serve, it would be my joy. Because Jesus has done everything for me that I didn't even, couldn't even scratch the surface of deserving it. I'm going to be a gracious neighbor. Why would I slander my neighbor? I was the one that deserved to be slandered above most. And the king of the universe came and died for me. He's been so gentle with me. He's been so patient. He's been so kind. Why wouldn't I give somebody else the benefit of the doubt? What do I have to lose? I have everything in Jesus. Like that's what Paul's laying before us in verses one through three. And so look, the practice is followed up with the motive of the gospel and our posture is that we live out in joy. As new creation, It's in this light that we read verses one through three and as new creations, those who are dead but are now alive, it's not our burden, but it's our delight to live out verses one through three. It's our joy. Cyprian, um, he lived in the mid 200s AD. Um, He wrote this. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by the truth. We know virtues by their patience rather than through boasting them. And then look at this. We do not speak great things, but we live them. We don't speak great things. I think he's drawing off of 1 Corinthians 1 here, that by the worldly standards, the wisdom of God is foolishness. But the wisdom of God is what brings salvation to us. What Cyprian's trying to lay before the church that he's writing to is we are a church that embodies this truth and we live it. That's the witness of God's household. A people that are so affected by what Jesus has done for them that it is our joy to give our life away, to be an asset to our community, to be a neighbor that people would die to have on their street, to step into the needs of our community, lay down our preferences, fight for how we can work with civil authorities. That's what Paul lays before us. That's our witness. All right, so let's step back to see the full picture here, all right? Try to close out the series in Titus, all right? So we've taken four weeks to look at God's vision for the church through this book of Titus, all right? And what we see is Paul worked through the vision of the church. This is God's household, the household of faith that we also see in um, Galatians 5. And you can almost view it in concentric circles, all right? So Paul works from the inner circle of the household of faith to the outward in Titus chapter 3. So I have a little image over here that you can kind of see it, all right? So he begins with the household message. What's the household message? It's the gospel The good news of Jesus, that before time even began, God promised our salvation. And so look, if that, what a beautiful promise. 
Why would we ever move beyond it? We don't as a church. And then Paul moves from there and he goes to the household leadership. You look at the leaders of a home or an organization where the leaders go, the community goes. And so we elect and we approve and appoint people that have been shaped by Jesus so that the rest of our community can be shaped by Jesus as well. That's what we see in Titus chapter 1. Then you see Titus move to Titus chapter 2. How do you live within the household of faith? Will you live as the school of grace where we train to live and apply the gospel in our day-to-day life? A beautiful image where the older generations are giving away their old age to the younger age to disciple them to grow up and live out the faith in this world. You see the younger generations, that they are learning to be a blessing to people and that they can be trusted on within the life of their community and learning to give their life away so that they can be a benefit to those that are around them. And they are working it out. They're training out the bad stuff and they're training in the new stuff. They're learning to function and live within the grace of God. And then you see Titus end the whole entire book by what does it look like for us to be the household witness? Well, God's household demonstrates the joy we found in Christ and we live out the gospel. Look, the vision here is breathtaking. It's like if you were to constantly be living before seeing the Grand Canyon for the very first time or the Niagara Falls for the very first time. Whenever you go and see those, it takes your breath away. The vision that we get here is breathtaking. A message that, oh my gosh, how could a God do this for us? How could God shape people and appoint them to a leadership that then the rest of the community can also be shaped by the goodness of that gospel. That, man, we have this school of grace, these people that we get to lock arms with, that we get to live in this life, that we get to train in what it looks like to live out the grace that has been accomplished for us, that we get to be a people that God has entrusted this gospel with, that we embody it and we live it in our community. It's beautiful. And look, this isn't a new vision for the church. It's the vision for the church. What essentially Paul is saying is like, look, I'm not calling you to be better. I'm just calling you to live into what God has made you to be. Look, church, let's do that. Let's be the church that lives in to who God has made us to be, new status, new creation for the benefit of our watching world. It's beautiful. Let us be that church. Let's pray.